0: Have you ever started anything with the, with the best intention of finishing well? Now, I'm, I'm sure you have. I'm positive you have. This is, this is the nature of every New Year's resolution ever, right? You have something that you want to do, and you imagine this glorious end on December 31st. But the reality is a lot of times it doesn't come to fruition. But there are other things you may have started uh, to try and, and finish, like running a marathon, you're like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run a marathon or I'm going to run a half marathon. And then you go on that first jog and your body is telling you, no, ma'am, <laughs> we are not going to run 13 miles. In fact, we are not going to run one mile. Uh, maybe you wanted to eat toast one morning and so you started so well and you put the toast in the oven and you forgot, like I did last week, and your alarms go off in your house because the toast is burning. Maybe it's uh, you think you can fix the plumbing on your house like I did about two months ago, and after hours of it not working and things getting worse, you finally call the plumber and spend thousands of dollars to do what you didn't know how to do in the first place. had the best of intentions of fixing that, and it didn't end well. Or maybe it's the relationship with that guy or that girl that after, like, two weeks, you were just certain this thing was going to move on toward marriage, and after about two months... You're trying to figure out how to backpedal your way out of this thing that you realize you no longer want to be in. It started with such great promise, and it ends in a blaze of glory. Y'all, that's like Gideon. We spent the last couple of weeks talking about Gideon, who was one of God's appointed judges, or which just means deliverers for his people, Israel. And if you want to listen to those that are on the podcast, you can go listen. Listen. Um, but Gideon started really well. And we, there was much about his life to be commended. He, he started as a very humble man, and God encouraged him in many ways and, and essentially gave Gideon faith, did these miraculous things around him. And Gideon trusted God, and he, um, he, he led the people of Israel into a battle that they didn't even have to pick up arms to win. They picked up trumpets and torches. And God essentially used that to kill 120,000 people. Because Gideon trusted God. In fact, Gideon shows up in Hebrews 11, which we might call the Hall of Faith. It's these great people from the Old Testament who trusted God. Gideon is in there. It said he was a man of great faith. Because he was. But it doesn't end well for Gideon. And we're going to look at that tonight. We're going to see what happened to Gideon. And so... The question is, if Gideon can fall, then who can stand? I mean, his story, his life started with such promise of him being the real deal. And it ends in a blaze of glory. It ends in destruction and chaos. So if not Gideon, then who? Who can end well? I want you to be thinking about that as we talk tonight. So look at your sheets right there or... Um, up on the screen, we're going to read from Judges eight twenty-two to thirty-five. Shorter passage tonight. Yay! This is the word of the God, the word of the Lord. The men of Israel said to Gideon, "Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian." And Gideon said to them, "I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you." And Gideon said to them. Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered and said, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he received was 1,700 shekels of gold. Pause. That's a lot. Like a lot, a lot. Unpause. (laughs) Where was? <laughs> besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephah of it and put it, in, and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. That's Gideon. That's the name that he's called by. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made, and made Baal Berith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jer- Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. This ends the reading of God's Word. Gideon started so, so well, and he finishes so, so poorly. What happened to Gideon? We're going to look at that question in three ways tonight, and they're in front of you in your handout, and they're going to be up on the screen. The first thing I want us to look at and consider is that there is a real danger in having good theology. I would add on the front end that having good theology seems like it would be better than having bad theology, and maybe it is, but there is a real danger in having good theology Let's talk about this through listening to me talk about playing baseball as a kid. When I was a kid, I began began playing baseball in T-ball. And I was pretty good. At least my mom told me I was. And so I decided I would take that to the next level. So I did. Went and played coach pitch. And I wasn't terrible. So I basically decided that baseball was the thing that I was going to give my life to. It was going to be my sport. Okay, so what that meant for Brent Corbin was I was going to start asking for all the gear at Christmas and on birthdays. So I would get new gloves, and I would get new batting gloves, which were like a status symbol. Uh, and I would get wristbands and armbands because that made you look good. And, um, and so I did. I would show up at these baseball games, baseball practice, and I played the part. I had black stuff under my eyes. I would go to the store and get cans of beef jerky and put it in my pocket and act like I was dipping beef jerky. True story. I also collected the cans. I had about 200 of them. Bizarre. So um, from the outside, I looked like I was a good baseball player. But something happened around sixth grade in baseball for me. Actually, it it didn't happen for me, but it happened for everybody else. And it was a little thing called puberty, as the kids say. And puberty was bad news for Brent because... Uh, apparently other guys were starting to do this in sixth grade, but I wasn't. And so what that meant is the ball was coming harder when I was up there batting. And also when I was out there fielding, the ball was coming harder because all of these other guys were getting stronger and they were able to do things that I wasn't able to do. And so I looked like a baseball player on the outside, but inside I was terrified. And so in seventh grade, still having not yet gone through puberty... I decided I would play golf instead. And in the first part of chapter 8 in this book that we didn't read, Gideon has a little bounce in his step. At the end of chapter 7 that we talked about last week, Gideon had, had won this war through doing nothing except trusting God, which is everything. But he shows up, and they have trumpets and torches, and, and God routes their enemy in front of them. And Gideon starts to feel pretty good about himself, which God warned that he would. God told Gideon, you will become boastful if I let you go out and do battle against them by yourself. And so God went out and did battle for him, and Gideon still became boastful. And so he goes out, and he's got a bounce in his step, and he he actually starts killing a few people on his own. He thinks he's he's kind of it, that he's becoming this good leader, this well-respected person. And he kind of is, because if you look in this passage in verse 22... The people of Israel come up to him and say to him, Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you've saved us from the hand of Midian. Now, look, this may sound very innocent. And if you were probably just picking up the Bible, reading through this, you would pass right over this because it doesn't seem to be anything that wrong with this. You see, except this one big thing. Until this point in the Bible, in all of the Bible, God himself had been raising up appointed people, judges, leaders, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, and all these other judges. God had been appointed them and calling them to go and lead his people. It was God's initiative to do that. And in this passage, what we see is a shift. That now the people are writing in their own ballots and saying, hey, Gideon, we want you to be our king. We want you to be our leader. We want you to rule over us. We don't want you to be what you've been. We want you to be a king. And this was a big deal. But Gideon knew better. Gideon had had good theology. He knew Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 and 15, which are up behind me. Gideon knew that God had told Israel that when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And that is not what we see happening here. We see a king who the people are choosing. And that was a big deal. So just like I knew how to act like a good baseball player, Gideon knows how to act like a godly man. And he looks at them and look down in verse 23. This is what he says. I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord God will rule over you. He's got that written on his eye paint right here. He's playing the part. It sounds great. His theology is airtight. This is the right answer, y'all. But what unfolds in this passage shows a totally different story. Because you imagine Gideon kind of giving the right theological answer, and you kind of see him come over to the side and start talking to his friends and be like, Hey, you think I would make a good king? You, really, you think I would be pretty good at that? Hmm. Okay, i tell you what. Why don't you guys all bring me all of the spoils of war? Go bring me all the gold earrings and all the ornaments and the crescents. Go ahead and bring that to me. Verse 24. Verse 27, he makes his own ephod, which we're going to talk about more in just a minute. But basically, that was a centralizing of power. So, first, he's gathering kind of the spoils of war like a king would do. And then he makes this ephod, which is a priestly garment that we're going to talk about, basically saying that the power resides here, like a king has. And then we see that Gideon goes on and he has many wives. And this is just because Gideon does this does not mean the Bible is approving this. It absolutely doesn't. The Bible, throughout, calls for monogamy. And Gideon. Like we imagine many rulers and powerful people do, he has many wives. And it says he has 70 sons. That word 70, it might have been literally 70. Sometimes that word is used in the Old Testament to talk about a lot. It's likely he had more. But he had one son in particular from a prostitute. Oops. Um, He had one son from a prostitute. He names him Abimelech, which sounds like every other Hebrew name, kind of bizarre. We don't really know what to do with that. But they would have known what to do with that. Because the name Abimelech means this My father is king. Ab in Hebrew is father, E is my, Melech is king. My father, king. Gideon named his son, My father is king. Gideon had right theology. He said, no, 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 no. the Lord, Yahweh is our king. But I'm kind of your king. I'm really comfortable in that role. I like what that's going to afford me. I like the power that's going to give me. I'm your king. I looked like a good baseball player right to the very end, but my heart wasn't in it. Gideon looked like a good judge. He looked like a godly leader for Israel. He had the right theology. The Lord is king, but his head was disconnected from his heart. His actions and his, his functional day-to-day theology wasn't good. What flowed out in his life was, was something totally different. He thought himself to be king. And in fact, verse 23 right there when it said, "...the Lord is king," That's the last time that the name, that Gideon talks about the Lord at all. It's almost like he forgets who God is, and in so doing, he forgets who himself is. He forgets that he is just someone, a normal person, who is reliant on God's grace, and he starts to think that he's something so much bigger. And what happened to Gideon, y'all, is what happens to a lot of us, that we know something intellectually about God, We may have really good theology, airtight theology. We we may know a lot of things about God, but it has not dropped that 18 inches from our head to our heart. And it is not flowing out in our life. And friends, you you may be completely orthodox in what you believe to be true about the gospel and about God and Jesus and the whole deal. But if your orthodoxy does not lead you to orthopraxy, If your right doctrine does not lead you to right practice, then you don't have right doctrine. And there is some kind of disconnect in your life. So what does this look like? What does this disconnect look like? You may have good theology. You know that racism is ugly. You know that denigrating people based on anything at all is ugly. You know that in your head but because you care so much about what people think about you when you're standing around in a group and people make some kind of slight comment about someone who may be different than you or from a different background than you or from a different socioeconomic class than you or of a different race than you, because you so much want them to accept you, you say nothing. And so your good theology doesn't matter at all because it's not leading to good good action. It also may look like this. You have right theology, and you you know in your head that people matter and that relationships are important. But functionally in your heart, what you believe to be most true is that success and accomplishment and academic achievement are the most important thing. And so anytime uh, you think about spending unstructured time with someone, you think of that as a waste of time, not an opportunity to build a relationship. So you may have great theology. Yes, I love people. But if the functional thing in your life says grades are the most important, then your good theology doesn't matter at all. Because you're showing yourself to not believe that. How about this? You have good theology. You know that God loves you and accepts you as you are. But so long as as you crave and believe that affirmation and approval and acceptance by all the people around you, whether guys or girls or whatever, as long as you believe that that's the most important thing in your life, then you will have a hard time saying no to them when they ask you to do something. You'll have such a hard time at the, at the thought of letting somebody down because you've decided, I can't do that. I'm not someone who lets others down. I'm a yes person. I'm always smiling and I'm always happy and I'm always showing up and I'm a good time. And so to, the thought of letting somebody down crushes you. And so you just say yes and yes and yes, yes, yes. And though you say that what God says about me is the most important, if functionally you don't believe that, then your good theology doesn't matter. You may know so much about God in your head, but like Gideon, if your heart is inclined to something else, then friends, you're showing that you actually believe and are living for something other than God, the God who your theology is all about. So what do we do with this? What do we do with it? This is all of us, by the way. What do we do when we find out that maybe we have this belief system that we say is true and yet functionally at a street level we're living for other things? The first step I would suggest is that we have to recognize that these are not small things. Like we can't just say, oh yeah, gosh, that's me. Guess I'll be better next time. These are big deals. These are big deals at a heart level. They are not pebbles. They are boulders in our heart. And so we have to see them for what they are. They're, they're important. They're, they're sin. This is what sin is, is to live for anything other than God at any level. So we have to call it that. And, and the Bible says we need, to tr- we need to treat sin seriously, and we have to take it seriously. So how do we take it seriously? If you see it, if you, if you can notice something about your heart, then the very first thing you do is you go to God with him and say, God, I see this. I acknowledge this. I confess that I'm living for this other thing other than you. And I just need to tell you that I need to confess that to you. So help me. Give me strength to turn away from it. This is called repentance. It's confession and and also turning and, and seeking to live differently. So maybe it means you don't respond to the text by saying yes. Maybe it means you say, sorry, I can't do that. Frowny face. Maybe it means that that you say yes to hanging out with the person when they ask you to, instead of saying, no, I need to study. Maybe it means that you say, no, I'm not going to have another drink. I've had enough. So we repent of this stuff. We, We have to reorient our hearts from these false beliefs to the true belief of the gospel, that God says, I'm... I've already given you everything that you need. I've already said you're significant. I've already said that I accept you. I've already said that I will give you joy. You don't have to go find it in anything else. So we repent and we believe the gospel. And quick pro tip. That is how all heart issues are dealt with. Repentance and faith. It's not eight steps to go do this and be the better you. It's repent of sin and believe the good news that is unchanging. God is for you in Christ, your love, forgiven, accepted, totally approved of. You have everything you want and need there already. So Gideon had good theology. He knew that the Lord God was king and ruler. But as Tim Keller says about this, there was an increasing, there was a huge and growing gap between what Gideon believed about God in his head and the motives of his heart and the actions of his hands. Gideon's mistake was that he failed to live out what he knew to be true. And so if that is you, I would encourage you to repent and to flee to God, and he will absolutely free you and give you strength from these things. But we have to call them what they are. Others of you actually need to learn a little bit about theology. You need to learn what you should believe. And it's not just an intellectual exercise because, again, if learning things about God doesn't flow to living differently, then it's all for nothing. Some of you need to grab a good book from off the table or ask me for recommendations. Say, I'd like to learn about this, and I'll tell you something, or Emily or Joey or a friend. Some of you need to learn some things. And th- this actually moves us right to the second point. So what is it that about success and power that's so grasped, And took Gideon's heart to the place where we see it took him. What is it about success and power that totally alienates him from the Lord? What happened? Success and power have such a lure because of this. They move us toward this seductive and destructive thinking that I am self-sufficient. I can do it on my own. I don't need anyone else to help me at all. Don't you get it? Don't you get it that that is what... That's the allure of power. That's the allure of of getting the position that you long for. I'm totally capable in and of myself. I don't need anyone else. I don't need God. Though you would probably never say that functionally, you just kind of are living life on your own. Um, Do you remember the the story, Titanic? Uh, Maybe you watched the movie... Celine Dion sings in it. Oh, my gosh. Um, so in Titanic, the, uh, the ship captain knew, he was uh, 100% aware that there was danger ahead, that there was icy water ahead. But he also knew that he was the captain of the Titanic, the, most, the, the greatest ship the world had ever known. It was indestructible. And so he knowingly just kept moving straight into that icy water. And by the time that good-looking guy in the movie said, Iceberg, straight ahead! The captain was like, I don't care. I'm the captain, and I'm the captain of the Titanic. I can do whatever I want. And he moved right in and hit the iceberg, and the rest is history. Gideon thought he was fine. He thought it was fine for him to be king. He had heard God's warning about being boastful, but apparently he ignored it. Maybe he, he was hiding behind his good theology. I don't know, but whatever the case, the allure of power and success overcame him. People were flattering to him. You can be king for us. So this is true. We see this unfolding in all the ways I already mentioned about the, the money and about the, the harem of wives and naming his kid that. But let's talk about this ephod thing for a second. What, what in the world's an ephod? Verse 26 and 27. The ephod was a, was a vest of sorts that, um, that God instructed the Israelites to make and for the high priest to wear. And it had the 12 um, uh, stones on it, and on the 12 stones were the 12 tribes of Israel. And only the high priest was supposed to wear it. And he was only supposed to wear it in the tabernacle, which was the tent. It was like the church for Israel. It was where God met them. So only the high priest and only in the tabernacle. And at this time, most likely, the tabernacle was at a totally different place. It was a place called Shiloh. And so when Gideon goes and says, huh, yeah, bring me your gold. And when he takes that gold and makes himself a golden ephod, what he is saying is unmistakable. He is saying, hey, you guys don't have to go over there to that place to meet with God. You can come right here. I can I can kind of be a priest for you. I can I can talk to God on your behalf. I can do this on my own. I don't we don't need that other place. And so what Gideon's doing is he's saying I I will gladly I will gladly take that power. I'll gladly let me be the one that you look to for your conversation with God and to confess sin and all this stuff. Keller says, by making his own copy, Gideon is essentially setting up his own hometown as a rival place of worship. He wants to encourage people to come to him for guidance, to see his town as the place where God can be found. Gideon has used God to consolidate his own power and position so that he can, so that he can have people serve him, so that he can be their God so that he can be their king. And it says right there that it was a snare to Gideon and to his people. I used to play Oregon Trail when I was a kid in elementary school. And in Oregon Trail, sometimes you would snare a rabbit. And you would eat a rabbit. What does snare mean? It means captured. What this is saying is that that Gideon thought he was going to, Capture all this power through making this ephod, but what happens is he makes this ephod and it captures him. It was a snare to him, it was a stumbling block, and he caused all of the people to whore after it. It became a false god. Gideon sets himself up as the king, and the people go to him. The allure of power is real and it's so powerful. Y'all, and if I'm going to be honest, this is i'm terrified about this as a pastor because when i'm reading this and thinking you know there, there's there's something very attractive and very powerful about having a position where people come to you and and share struggles and talk about you know need help kind of life guidance and all of this stuff, and when you're 12 or 14 years older than people, and you just have a little bit more life under your belt, it's entirely possible for me to just sit there and give you answers, and I do sometimes. And some of you, I need to say, I'm sorry, I've just, I've just given you answers of what I thought was best. And there's a lot of flattery in that for me. And it's just terrifying to me, because in some ways, I know that in my day-to-day job, I'm setting myself up like Gideon, like this false king, being like, hey, yeah, just come to me, I'm the answer man. My phone number's right there on the back of the sheet. Come, I'll answer your questions. I'll help you with your problems. I'll pray for you. You know, kind of put a little Jesus butt slap on the end and and send you out the way. So if you're a girl, and I won't. And if you're a guy, I probably won't either because that would be weird. So I, I do this. And you do too. You have people around you who will willingly give you positions of power, Hey, you want to be OL? That'll be amazing. You'll have all these new freshmen look up to you and think you're great. Oh, you want to be an RA? Cool. We need you. You'll be great at it. Oh, you want to be president of fraternity? Great. We think you'd be really good at that. Oh, yeah, I think I would too. We set ourselves up in these places because power is so attractive. The allure is so real. It's so strong. People looked at Gideon and said, we need a leader, we need a king. How about you, Gideon? And the funny thing about Judges, by funny I mean sad, is that the book ends by saying, and there was no king in Israel. Gideon never became officially king. It says there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the implication to that is, well, maybe if Israel would get a king, then they wouldn't be such screw-ups, and they wouldn't keep going and, and whoring themselves after, other, these false, all, after all these other false gods. But the thing is, is that Israel does get a king. They get lots of kings. And you can read the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and read about all of Israel's king, kings. But friends, by the time you get to the Old Testament, it's like the whole message of the Old Testament is, yep, Israel had not just lots of judges, but Israel had lots of kings. And everyone still did what was right in their own eyes. Because Israel didn't need another human king. They didn't need a better Gideon. They didn't need just a better judge to come and not screw up. They needed a true king. They needed the real king. They needed a king who wouldn't fail them. They needed a king who would end well, who would be faithful to the very end. And none of the Old Testament kings did that. They failed again and again and again and again. And the whole Old Testament ends on a down note. And God goes silent for 400 years. And the looming question is this, well, well who will save us? Like, if none of the kings could do it, who is going to rescue us? That's what God's people are thinking. And then he goes silent. And they're also at that point thinking, I guess God's forgotten about us. I guess he's not going to rescue us. Until he does. Until he sends his son into the womb of the Virgin Mary. Until Jesus is born. Until Jesus lives a very ordinary life. And when he's about 30 years old, Satan leads him out into the the desert to tempt him. And Jesus... The first person ever in history comes out of this period of being tempted by Satan in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And he says this to all the, all the people around him. He says, I have good news for you. I have gospel. I have something good to tell you. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, I'm the king. I'm the king that you've been waiting for that you didn't even know God was going to send. You had given up on him, but I am the king. And I'm the true king. And how does Jesus show us that he's the true king? In several ways. As the true king, and unlike Gideon, Jesus had every right to demand tribute from every single person in the world and to collect their money and to collect our things. And yet we see as Jesus, through the course of his life, he was poor. He basically had nothing. He ended his life without clothes on. He had so little. He was a king, but he gave up his riches so that you might share in his inheritance that he had already. He's the true king, and unlike Gideon, he was the tabernacle. He was the place of God's dwelling. John chapter 1, verse 14, John said, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt means tabernacled. John is saying Jesus came and tabernacled among us. He was God's presence with us. So he didn't just put on an ephod, he, he was God in the flesh. And so unlike Gideon as the true king, G- Jesus resisted Satan's temptation to, to rule over people with power and to lord it over them and to kind of use his power to, to dominate them. Jesus took his power and he used it to serve people. He came and placed himself willingly under them. So I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many, as the true king, he gives up his power. And as the true king, Jesus used his power to empower you. He used his freedom to give you freedom. You see, it was that in Jesus giving himself over to the authorities, willingly being enslaved, what he was doing... By being led to the cross and killed was he was saying, "I am giving you freedom from the sin that is going to kill you." Jesus is the true king. And when you realize that He loves you and He's forgiven you and that you are right with God because of what He has done, friends, you begin to be free. You begin to be free from those other things that you're giving your life to, from the the things that are your functional gods, the functional theology of your life that you're kind of believing. When you see that God is better than these things, that Jesus is the true king it starts to drive out these false kings and kingdoms that we create. And unlike Gideon wearing the ephod, Jesus as the true king is the one to whom you can come and find direction. Jesus has not left us to kind of guess how we're supposed to live this life. He's given us the word. And Jesus, as the good king, has has equipped pastors and elders of his church as under shepherds to come and lead you and guide you. And as they're rightly interpreting the word and pastoring you and counseling you toward that end, Jesus is demonstrating that you can come to him for direction in life. And so I'm not saying don't come to me and talk. It's a heart issue for me. I have to repent of my desire to be powerful. And then I have to know that God is going to use me and he's going to use other pastors toward his ends because that's what Jesus does. He's a good king and he takes care of his people. And so as you think about your life, if, if Jesus is the king of your life, then that means you can stop trying to be. Do you realize that? That if Jesus is the true and good king over your life, then friends, you can take this supposed crown that is burdening you from day to day. You can take it off and set it down. And you can rest. Because Jesus is rightly wearing the crown. He is actually in charge. And you can trust Him. He loves you. He's for you. He has given everything so that you might have everything. Because I promise you this, you will either labor to be king of your own kingdom or you will find Jesus to be the king of the whole world and you will find rest in his kingdom. And they cannot exist side by side. Jesus is not going to share his kingship with you. But the good news is that he's the king who laid down his life for you so you can trust him. He's for you. He is the Savior King. He's the one whose story on this earth did not end well. So that yours can. Do you understand that? Jesus' story ended terribly at the cross. But in the resurrection, he's saying, hey, come and join with me and it will all be well for you in the end. Do you believe that? Life is found in him and nowhere else. Let's pray together.